0: It was a year of a lot of firsts. Obviously, it was our first year here in Suffolk, which we're happy about, we're proud of. But also, like I said in that video, it was the first uh, night in Newport News in Williamsburg and New England. It was David Godwin's first year as the youth pastor in Newport News, a lot of firsts. And, and something that wasn't in that video that I want to hit on now is for a lot of you coming here on a Saturday it was your first time through those doors. It's your first time worshiping with us. And a lot of you have become a part of just this family of faith. You've gotten rooted, you've started serving, you've been attending life groups and your family. And I just wanted to thank you uh, for taking that step. Being so bold as to join us and worship with us and pursue God with us means a lot. That's why we came here to reach the undevoted, those that don't know Christ. And then to reach the disconnected, those that maybe don't have a home church and are spiritually orphaned. That's a part of our vision. It's a part of our mission. It's a part of our calling. So I just wanted to thank every person that calls City Life home and and worships with us. We're proud uh, to be the church you call home. And uh, we talked last week about how Oxford Dictionary and some of these dictionaries have a word of the year. So this, this week I was praying, God, if if last year as a church City Life had a word, what would that word have been? And just as I was praying and, and reflecting on that, just again and again, just returning to the word rooted. You know, as a church, we were getting rooted here on the south side, getting our services uh, in order, uh, having life groups and ministries at Creekside and ministries at College Square, you know, humble beginnings, but really getting rooted in the community. And then people moving from Newport News down to this region that had, were a part of the plant team, getting rooted there with their families, and then other people coming in on Saturday nights and getting rooted as members of the church. And just God impressing on me that as much as we put down seed, as much as we got rooted last year, that there's fruit that's going to come. And as awesome as last year was, the fruit ahead of us is going to be even better so come on that's something we can be expectant for have faith for have hope for that man we got rooted last year and it was awesome getting to know you guys worshiping together serving the community together but there's better yet to come amen but again we talked last week about how the word of the year was post-truth and all of what that means in our pluralistic society but it's funny because if you go back a year earlier the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year was an emoji It was the the LOL emoji where it's smiling and there's kind of tears coming off the sides. And I don't remember which dictionary it was, but a couple years ago, the word of the year was YOLO. How many know what that means or what that stands for? Thank you. You only live once. We're a hip church. But like like Cord was dropping the word lit during announcements, there's these words that our culture comes up with, often the youth, that just become a part of our vocabulary and sometimes our dictionaries. Like like lit last year, what else? Uh, Finesse. Uh, what's that? Selfie, savage, sauce. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of you. Some of you are like, what on earth? I swear, when I was the youth pastor, half of my job was keeping up with the vocabulary so I would know what on earth the youth were talking about. Like, I heard somebody say uh, in the past couple weeks, I don't even remember who it was, but they said Hundo P. And I'm like, what? What just came out of your mouth? And they mean, you know, 100%. I'm like, you just confused me. And all you saved was one syllable. Like, it's just as easy to say 100%. It's not even like you shortened it. You said Hundo P, and I thought you were talking about a Street Fighter character or something. Like, what are you talking about? Uh, But uh, another one that's funny to me is there was a a hip-hop artist that went into a a morning uh, radio show. He was feeling disrespected, and he said, you got to put some respect on my name. So then people started saying, I want you to put some respect on this. Put some respect on my parenting. Put some respect on my style. R-E-S-P-E-K. And I say all that. I'm going somewhere with this. In the Roman Empire, in the time of Jesus, in the time of the early church, when when Roman soldiers or Roman citizens would pass each other, they would say, Caesar is Lord. And then in reply, the other person walking past would say, Caesar is Lord. And this was a way of proclaiming allegiance to the Roman ruler, and if I may, put some respect on his name. The word for Lord in the Greek is kurios, and it can means sir in a slightly exalted way of referring to another human being, but it was more than just respect with Caesar. It was giving him the status of a deity. So Christians, early Christians, they, they got revolutionary with it. They, when, when Christians would convert, they'd say to each other on the streets, Jesus is Lord, and they would reply with, Jesus is Lord. And this was revolutionary. To the Romans, this was heresy and treason. There's a story, I don't know if it's legend or history, of a man who was being passed by these Roman soldiers, and they said, Caesar is Lord. He said, nothing in return. So they pressed him. They didn't just pass on. They're like, they pressed him. And eventually he said, no, Jesus is Lord. So they took him and his family to the Colosseum and fed them one by one to the lions, trying to get them to say Caesar is Lord, but they wouldn't. To their death, their confession was Jesus is Lord. And again, I've shared this before for the early church, that in a pluralistic society, the fact that they had a God that they worshiped, that wasn't a big deal. The problem was the God that they worshiped was the Lord of lords. He was the King of kings, and he wanted our exclusive worship. He's either king over everything or he's not king over anything. He's either king over all or he's not king at all. And Paul, who was persecuted himself again and again, he proclaimed this boldly. And you know, I'm going to pull a lot from his second letter to the church in Corinth tonight. And in 2 Corinthians 4 5, he says, You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves, we preach that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And then in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, a passage I want to look at tonight. He says, we're human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. Come on, that's good. Jesus is Lord. When we say that, personally, in our own pluralistic society. Again, when we say Jesus is Lord, often it's kind of in a personal or individual way. He's our Lord, but we don't want to impose that on others. But Jesus is Lord is a universal statement about the creator of the universe. And again, he's either Lord of lords and king over all, or he's not really king at all. He's king over everything, or he's not really king. And this was exciting when Jesus hit the scene and people were saying, oh, here's our king, here's our messiah. For the Israelites in that time, that was exciting because they were looking for something revolutionary to get them out from under the thumb of the Romans and this Caesar who proclaimed himself Lord, who was persecuting them for years. It got to the point where it says in John 6 that Jesus withdrew from the crowds because he knew that they intended to come and make him king by force. The idea that Jesus is king it was revolutionary. And the Jews wanted a revolution. They wanted to get out from under Roman oppression. And no doubt in their reading of the Old Testament, they might have looked at something like the book of Joshua, where we're looking at last week and going into Judges, and they might have thought, man, maybe war is the answer. Maybe violence is the ticket to freedom. And I joked last week about the first time when I was a youth pastor, I heard a dad say, well, I don't let my son read the Old Testament yet. And I was like, whatever. And then I read the book of Judges. You get to the end, and it's like, I understand completely why, because it's so depraved as the people turn from God, and the morality just goes down the toilet. And you could, in the same way, look at the book of Joshua and blacklist it because it's so full of warfare, so full of violence. And to some, this is a black mark on Christianity. I can remember when I was a youth, and when I was in high school, and 9-11 happened, and the chorus was, well, you know, religion causes so much violence, Religion causes so many wars, and if if we would just let go of our religious convictions, then the world would be a more peaceful place. And how quickly in the beginning of the 21st century, we forgot the 20th century, where we saw the regime of Stalin and Lenin and, and these atheistic Soviet regimes and the violence and the things they perpetrated. You know, the real problem isn't religion or irreligion or politics. The problem is extremism. And when we take these ideals And it's just a part of our broken humanity to abuse these ideals. I mean, you can look at historically what people did in the name of freedom, but that doesn't make the ideal wrong. It doesn't. And if you keep reading the Old Testament, you'll see that the Israelites, more often than not, were on the receiving end of God's judgment. And that might be ironic to some people. It might be confusing. But we got to realize that Joshua is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It describes what God and his sovereignty did, not what we should do. There's no go and do likewise for the readers of the Old Testament. Often the judgment was, again, on his own. And parents can understand this because we as parents, we don't discipline somebody else's kids. You can get arrested for that, right? You don't discipline somebody else's kids. You discipline your own kids. Tough love starts at home. And sometimes I think with God, we assume that his judgment will will strike those people out there doing those things and perpetrating those evils before he would ever judge us. But it, it starts with us. And again, a reader of the Old Testament, he's not encouraged to take up arms. If you keep reading, you realize often it's God's people that are under the judgment. And this is doubled down in the New Testament where Jesus permanently eliminates the option of violence. You know, Jesus didn't just elevate the commands, as we see at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus elevated the playing field. He elevated the battlefield. The battle's not against flesh and blood, as it says in Ephesians 6. The weapons are spiritual, not physical, as we just read in 2 Corinthians 10. Jesus defeated spiritual powers and authorities, but he didn't do it by killing. He did the complete opposite. He laid his life down for his enemy. Why? Why? Because the territory Jesus concerns him with isn't physical territory or zip codes or area codes. It's it's our hearts. He doesn't grow his kingdom by forces of violence. He grows his kingdom by the force of grace. So when we read a book like Joshua, when we read into Judges, and we look at it as we have over these past weeks, and we see that they didn't obey and they didn't remove enemies from the land that God wanted them to have, we got to look through that, not with binoculars, out at the culture and how they do it wrong, but we need to look in a mirror because we got to reflect on the unexposed areas in our hearts that we cling to, where we live with pluralistic hearts, with conflicting lowercase kings, the parts of our hearts where we've we've compartmentalized and tried to keep things separate. We worship over here, and then there's other parts that we haven't surrendered. Because, again, God's either king of all or he's not king at all. It's telling that the battle that they fight in Joshua to take the land by the end of Judges When they cast off God as king and when they cast off obedience to him and they do as they see fit, by the end of Judges, it's become a civil war. The enemy's no longer an external enemy, but internal. John Owen, the old pastor, once said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And this killing sin isn't the power of Christ compels you type where it takes a gallon of holy water. We're talking about strongholds, strongholds. And so often when we hear that word stronghold, we might jump to thinking it's, it's something that involves the demonic. But the New Testament, when it talks about strongholds, most often it's talking about broken mindsets, distorted views, seeing incorrectly, and the perspectives and paradigms we operate from that keep us from walking in God's truth. You know, David Wilkerson, he defined a stronghold as this. He said, a stronghold is a mindset value system or thought process that hinders your growth the growth of others and you exalting jesus over everything in your life now we just got to pause there because last week we preached on joshua we preached on consecration this verse in joshua 3 5 where he says consecrate yourselves because tomorrow god is going to do amazing things among us we talked about how consecration is our response to god's invitation from the beginning of creation to king me so often in our lives Our our cry with our actions is king me, but but God says, no, step under me in my reign and my rule as king and lord of lords and king of kings, exalting Jesus over everything. And we see right here, it works against exalting Jesus over everything in your life. So strongholds, they work against the consecration we talked about last week. We believe something false and in believing something false, our, our walk with God becomes hindered. You know, one thing that I want to do with Steph, we're in the process of adopting. Sometime this summer, we're going to bring home Raj from India. But before we do that, Steph has never gone camping, like ever, like for real camping. She's done like the, the fake camping. She, she's, she's glamped. What is that? Glamorous camping? Glamping. Clem knows what that's about. But anyways, he knows what it's not. Sorry, Clem's, Clem's a man's man. He goes out and camps. But I, I've, I've camped a couple times. How many of you guys have seen a bear in person? out camping yeah Tennessee one time I was out camping, saw a black bear I don't think he saw me thank goodness but you know with a black bear they say that you're supposed to make yourself look big maybe you'll intimidate it maybe you'll decide it'll decide that you know I'm not I'm not up for this fight but a brown bear those are like apex predators a grizzly bear they say man just curl up in the fetal position and pray because you can't outrun it you can't outfight it, you can't do anything you just curl up play dead and hope it walks away right because they're apex predators You don't know what a brown bear is because you have lived under a rock. That's one. But just as a visual for this story, because there was a, a great brown bear that was part of this traveling circus. And this German zoo bought the bear. So as this bear was a part of this traveling circus, he lived in this 12 foot by 12 foot holding cell. The water was stagnant. The food was repugnant. And for all day, this bear would just take a few steps one direction and a few steps back few steps one direction and a few steps back, trapped in this cage. And finally, this German zoo buys the bear, brings the cage, the cage to the zoo where there's just acres of land for this bear to explore. For There's, there's fresh water for him to drink out of uh, just streams. And there's other bears for it to become bear friends with, BFFs, whatever. And so they bring it to the zoo and they can't get it to come out of the cage. Just keeps pacing one direction, pacing back as much as they tried to coax it out. So finally, they lit sticks on fire, and they had to prod it out of the cage. And so it's finally out of the cage. It's in this huge expanse of of land and territory. And what does it do? just keeps taking a couple steps one direction, a couple steps back, a couple steps one direction, a couple steps back. And they began to realize that the cage that this bear was suffering from, it wasn't just a, a metal one, but it was a mental one. You know, that bear never got acclimated to its new freedom, and eventually it had to be put down. You know, this is the devil's plan since day one. If he can't keep us in the cage, he'll cripple us with a mental one. You look at Adam and Eve back in the expanse of the garden, you got to ask the question, did they ever fully explore all that God created for them to enjoy, all that God created for them to explore? The enemy lured them to one tree, the one tree that was forbidden, probably 12 feet by 12 feet as they stood there and just looked at the forbidden fruit, and ultimately they lost everything. You know, God says to the Israelites in Judges 1-4, I have given the land into their hands. This was their promised land. This was like their restoration of Eden that they could walk in, explore, and take. And only obedience, only obedience, as we see in both Joshua and Eden, would truly unlock that freedom. You know, it's in that letter to the church of Corinth. It's in 2 Corinthians 6, through 13 I'm just going to read it. Because this is like a fill-in-the-blank text. And you can fill in your your name because he says, dear, dear. And you can fill your name in here, Stephanie, Justin. I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter this wide-open, spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. I'm speaking as plainly as I can and with great affection. Open up your lives. Live openly and expansively. You know, what we see in this passage is sometimes the smallness we feel comes from within, the strongholds that are within. And we live expansively and free by walking out the passage from chapter 10 we read earlier that Paul addresses strongholds, where he says that these strongholds of human reasoning, they set themselves up against the true knowledge of God. You know, the devil is a liar, right? Right. I overuse that phrase, joking, mocking my wife sometimes, like devil's a liar, but it's the truth. Again, these things that set themselves up against the knowledge of God, the true knowledge of God, as one translation says, those are his tool. You know, some things the enemy sets up in our life, they're not going to keep you from eternity, but they will keep you from maturity. We talk all the time, Steph hit on that verse from Psalm 27, 13, that I would have lost hope if I didn't think I'd see the goodness of God in the land of the living. There's a taste of heaven God wants to give us in this life to whet our appetite for the heaven to come. And if the enemy can't keep us from eternity, he's going to do everything he can to keep us from the maturity that will walk in the goodness of God. Again, if he can't keep you in the, in the cage of sin and death, he'll at least try to keep you caged with some kind of stronghold. You know, sanctification is a big word for the idea of coming to spiritual maturity. We can't forget about sanctification. So often we think about the position of salvation, the position, I'm under the cross, I'm under the blood, I'm good, <laughs> I'm Gucci, as the youth would say. But God calls us, thank you, Cordy, you for me in that. God calls us not just to position. God calls us to transformation. Again, life and life to the full, and, and we have to work for that. Grace covers our sin but grace also calls us to be transformed, and that transformation takes breaking a sweat spiritually. But again, if the enemy can't prevent the position, he'll do his best to prevent the transformation. If he can't uh, prevent eternity, he'll do everything he can to prevent the maturity that will walk in the full goodness of God, not just for yourself, not just to explore the goodness of God for yourself, but to build his kingdom. Come on, the work we're called to do here in Suffolk and in the greater region. And I just want to look at tonight, Before we close, three strongholds that I think are common, not only in our culture, but unfortunately in the church. And it can creep its way into the church. And it can keep us from the maturity God calls us to. Because we're one year old as a church. We're just a baby. We're getting our legs under us, right? God's got a great calling for us. But come on, it's going to take us coming out from those cages that the enemy would try to keep us in. Coming out from those strongholds that, honestly, some of these are so common. The first one, the stronghold of entitlement. You know, entitlement is basically the opposite of consecration. It's counter-consecration. It's Consecration is all I am, all I have is God's. Entitlement is, this is mine, this is owed to me. It breeds impatience, and it runs counter to endurance. It scoffs at the two things that God requires of us often, which is to work for something and to wait for something. You know, waiting is a lost art in a culture that keeps creating ways That make things convenient, and hey, I'm not complaining, right? The danger, though, is when we can look for a fast food faith. You know, I was reading through Genesis. If you're reading through the Bible this year, you probably read or you did read the story of Abraham. And I know, coming up as a kid, I grew up in the church, so I'd be like, I'm gonna read the Bible this year. How many guys have read Genesis like 47 times because you're like, yeah, I'm gonna read it, and then you start over again? Yeah, that was me as a kid. So I've read Abraham again and again and again. And as a kid, I think, man, he had it made. This guy spoke directly to God. Like God imparted vision from his mouth to Abraham. But as I'm reading this year, I kind of got a different perspective. Because Abraham was addressed by God eight times over 100 years. And he didn't have a Bible like we do to just open up and hear the voice of God. Eight times over 100 years. Often it wasn't clear. It didn't spell out every step. It didn't say how he was going to achieve the promise or, 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 or how he was going to get from point A to point B. But God would speak. And then sometimes it was decades before he'd hear again. I'm like, man, I begin to appreciate the fact that we have the word of God, that any day, any moment I can open it up. And God has already spoken. He speaks to me. He speaks to you. I don't remember who said it first. But, man, you want to hear God speak, open up your Bible and read out loud because <laughs> it's the word of God given to us. And then secondly, with Abraham, he had to wait till he was 100 to receive the promise. He did a lot of waiting. And if you keep reading, I'm beginning Exodus now. In Exodus 13, is Moses is bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, he's delivering them. They're often on their way to the promised land. It says in Exodus 13, in verses 17 and 18, it says, when Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. You know, this thing was called the promised land. It would be easy to feel entitled to something that's promised to you. Like, why aren't we just strolling right into the promised land? But it says that God takes them the long way. It's kind of like Steph was saying during worship. I don't know what your promised land is. I don't know what season you're in where it feels like God's taking you the long way. When I was a teenager, I already was like, man, I can't wait to be a father, right? Have a, a, a mini-me just running around the house. This, just, that's flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood. That's a son or a daughter. Like, I've always wanted that. We've had the long route. You know, in my mind, I was going to be married by 21, have kids by 25. I don't know if that's a, a manly thing to do to plan that far ahead. I know it's the women that plan the wedding, right? But anyways, we got married late. I got married late. You know, we walked through infertility. Now we're in an adoption process that's been drawn out to four years. Feels like we've been doing a whole lot of wandering in the wilderness. Like, this isn't what I signed up for. I thought this was a promise for me. I thought this was a dream you put in my heart. And I don't know what that looks looks like for you. Might be something completely and entirely different. But it's something you've been waiting for. You feel God's promised, a dream that he's placed on your heart. And you've been waiting, and you've been waiting. And it feels like you've been in a wilderness season. Like, why am I not just walking right into this promise? You know, sometimes, like it was for the Israelites, God is leading us a better way, and we don't even know it. Come on, he could have led them right into the Philistines on the shortest route, and they would have been wiped right out. But we're not sovereign. We're not almighty. I know that through this whole path, right, when we get rise, I'll be like, yep, this was worth it. I wouldn't have signed up for anything different. But how often? Is it tough? You know, like endurance re- reaps great rewards, but when you're waiting, it can stink. It's no fun. But you know what? Romans 5, it talks about endurance. It says suffering produces endurance in Romans chapter 5, verse 4. And then it says that when you have endurance, that it unlocks character, strength of character, and strength of, er, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Again, endurance reaps great rewards. But sometimes it's no fun to go through. But how often do we tap out too soon? You know, since we're adopting from India, there's this movie, Lion, that just came out. How many of you have actually heard of it? It's an independent film. It's about this uh, orphan that, well, gets orphaned because it's a five-year-old boy who gets lost from his family in a nation of, of well over a billion people. So he couldn't find his way back. Eventually, he's adopted, and when he's in his 20s, he tries to find his way home, and, and he's he's using Google Maps. He's just clicking around, trying to find home. It's crazy, and it doesn't say it in the movie, but Google actually made an ad about the movie and about the story, and again, it doesn't say it explicitly in the movie, but for three years, he spent every day from 5 p.m. to 2 a.m. clicking around on Google Earth, following the train tracks for three years. That's 9,855 hours he spent clicking around on Google Maps. And I heard that statistic, and I had to pause. How soon would I have punked out, <laughs> said, I can't do this? Probably after 855 hours. He, would, he did it for 9,855 hours. And I had to think, man, how often do I give up too soon? How often do I tap out too soon? John Maxwell, this great leadership guru, he once said, dreams don't work unless you do. And man, the dreams I walk in will be the dreams I've worked on with endurance, the dreams I've waited on with endurance. You know, entitled waiting, uh, waiting with this perspective of entitlement is, well, if God's promised it to me, He's going to give it to me. But the waiting God calls us to, we can't, uh, we can't confuse being patient with being complacent. God, we, we've talked about it before. We, with our prayer life, we, don't, we need more than just a wishbone. We need a backbone. Like if you're wishing for a job, you better have the backbone to put together a resume, go out, tie a tie, and do some interviews. If you're wishing for finances, hopefully you have a backbone to put together a budget. If you're wishing for disciplined children, hopefully you have the backbone to discipline them. When you ask, be prepared to act because God often asks that our wishbone have a backbone to go with it, to do something to demonstrate our faith and not a stronghold of entitlement. It took backbone to eventually take the promised land. It took action. It took doing. Not only did they take the long way to get there, but once they got there, they had to battle for it. But when I think of entitlement, I think of Veruca Salt from Willy Wonka. Anybody, right? But I want it now, daddy, right? There's a whole song she sings. You know, parents, especially when you see that moment or you see that in your child, right, you realize the value in making your kid wait for something, in making your kid work for something. Because it teaches them commitment. It teaches them tenacity. It teaches them to appreciate it. It teaches them to be grateful for it. You know, we sing it all the time. Our God is a good, good father. And he does the same for his children. But sometimes I think we get salty when we have to wait for it, have to work for it. But again, it it cures us of the stronghold of entitlement, and it breeds endurance, and it's through endurance that we grow and our character is transformed. Again, when the Israelites left Egypt, they weren't ready to battle anybody. But by the time they got to the promised land, and it took two passes, but by the time they got to the promised land the second time, they had the faith to fight for it, the tenacity to go after it. Come on, the enemy, if he can't rob us of eternity, he'll rob us of the maturity we need to walk into the promises God has for us. The second uh, stronghold that I want to hit on quickly is comparing, comparison. Look no further than the blessing and the curse that is social media and is the condition that is Instagram envy, right? When our likes get caught up in a desire to be like, you know, I'm guilty of it too. I'll I'll log on and I'll see what, what looks like the perfect church, what looks like the perfect house, the perfect father, the perfect husband, but then I remember one thing I heard Stephen Furtick say long ago, and it's in one of his books. We often compare our behind the scenes to somebody else's highlight reel. And that's when we get discouraged. That's when we, we get down because all those posts, that's somebody's trophy photo. <laughs> and another refreshing perspective is just this idea that, that as I pursue God, my pursuit it's not a project that's going to come to completion. It's a process you know, last week, it was the 21st of January, so I was congratulating anybody that made that, that uh, resolution to form a habit or to do something. You're 21 days in, so legend has it that, hey, you formed a habit. But we can't look at our walk with God that way. Can't look at it like P90X where, hey, I'm going to work out for 90 days, and by the end, I better have my before and after picture where the after looks like a young, toned Sylvester Stallone, right? Like, that's, I can't have that perspective in my walk with God because the perspective— we need to have is that we'll never arrive you know Jesus says be perfect good luck arriving at that that doesn't mean to not strive for that but there's a a healthy realization that I'm never going to be the world's best dad no matter how many mugs I get I'm never going to be a perfect husband but I can strive to be completely holy and righteous but when I fail I don't have to freak out When I fail, I don't have to get discouraged because I didn't fail some project. It's just part of the process. I'm working my way through. And despite what I think I see when I see other people's uh, pictures, they haven't arrived yet either. None of us will truly arrive. It's a process. You know, the 76ers, where's Jordan stepped out? He's a Sixers fan. I can say it since he's not in here. They've been pitiful, right? They're not a very good franchise. And their motto for years now has, uh, has been trust the process. We have a miserable season, trust the process. Have another bad season, trust the process. Another bad season, trust the process. We're accumulating lotto picks. One day we'll be good, right? They're not the best example <laughs> because they, they're still not very good. But the reality is for every season, it's just another step in the process. We don't have to stress that I haven't arrived in this season because again, for things like Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The moment I think I've arrived there, I certainly haven't. (laughs) But we press on and we persevere towards excellence. We persevere towards holiness and consecration. But whatever excellence we achieve, it's tempered by humility because consecration realizes, don't crown me. Right. I'm never going to arrive. Crown the one who opened the door to the grace that carried me to where I am now. Crown Jesus Christ. You know, again, you can look at at how comparing is a trap because comparing also it, it sparks conformity. Again, this idea that, that when you like something enough, sometimes you want to you be like it. Not just conforming to, to other good examples, but conforming to the world. Most of us at one point in our life, we've, we've memorized Romans twelve two, where it says, don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That wasn't a new problem to the church when Paul was writing Rome. You go all the way back to the New Testament. You go back to after Judges when they miserably failed to take over the promised land. Eventually, the prophet Samuel is standing before them, and they say, give us a judge to judge us like all the other nations have. They had been overcome with this desire to be like the nations around them. And if you turn back even further, back into the book of Judges, there's the the judge, the hero, Gideon. He's one of the judges that God raises up to deliver his people. We can't get into the whole story now, but... God delivers the people through Gideon, and he comes back victorious, and the people are looking to him with expectation, and, and he says something that's full of wisdom. He says, I won't rule over you, nor will my son. He says, the Lord will rule over you. It's that right consecration mindset that, no, 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 God is king. I'm not going to rule over you. I'm not going to say king me, even though the impulse of my flesh is king me. But what gets funny is how things play out after that. When he has this conversation with the Israelites, he doesn't give God credit for the victory. He kind of says, okay, yeah, yeah, I did a good job. So he accumulates riches. He accumulates this harem of wives, this, this, the habits of kings of those days. And then what does he name his son? Anybody know? Abimelech. And what does that mean? It means my father is king. Kind of ironic when he says, I don't want to be your king, I don't want to rule over you, but then he takes on the lifestyle of a king, and he names his son, my father is king. His theology was right, but his life wasn't. You know, how often are we content to confess one thing with our mouths, but then to compare and conform with our life? Keeping up with the Joneses so often leads to falling behind with God. A life of consecration is hard. And the pursuit of God isn't always green pasture, so often we say, hey, you know what? Let me try wearing this crown myself. Maybe it's not the confession of our mouth, but maybe it's it's our actions like Gideon's were. It's this last stronghold of individualism, where we're the sun, everybody else is the planets. There's power to that song we sang where it says, Jesus be the center of my life. Jesus be the center of the church, because so often the inclination of our flesh is to be the center we say God's on the throne, but so often the inclination of our flesh day after day is to crawl up on the throne ourselves. And it's the culture in our our society, this this culture where we want to climb the ladder and we'll climb over anybody and chew them and spit them out. It's the culture of judges continued. We talked about Judges 21-25 last week where it says in those days Israel had no king because they cast off God as king and everyone did as they saw fit. They rejected consecration to God as king. They said, hey, king me. I know what's best. They rejected love for their neighbor. And again, by the end of Judges, the promised land was a place of civil war where, again, you get to those last chapters as rated R or worse. When we reject God as king, we reject his two greatest commandments. Love God and love people. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor. The stronghold of individualism, individualism, it keeps us from both, both of those things. You know, the hip-hop anthem when I was still a youth pastor was, uh, it had a line in it, I'm going to do me, I don't give a care about you, but it wasn't in those words. And it was the perspective. It's the perspective of our culture, if we're honest. The perfect place for the enemy to keep us. Because the kingdom of God, his church, it will grow as we walk in love for God and love for people. But to do that, we have to replace this focus on me. (laughs) We have to replace this focus on me with a focus on unity. We have to replace this focus on me with a focus on diversity, and that takes empathy. We have to replace this focus on me with a a focus on synergy. And synergy is this really cool word, similar to unity, but it focuses more on, on the production, what unity can produce. Synergy means the interaction and cooperation of two or more agents to produce a combined effect greater than the sum of their parts. I'll read that again. The interaction and cooperation of two or more agents to produce a combined effect greater than the sum of their parts. It's the complete opposite of the behavior we see in judges, where everyone did as they saw fit, where they broke into civil war. You know, Stephen Covey, he's the author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He said, synergy is better than my way and is better than your way because it's our way. But the synergy that God seeks is greater than just me and you and whoever else coming in a room and trying to find unity around something and then producing. Because synergy, just like unity, it, it's not a virtue. It's a vehicle, and with the wrong object, it can be devastating. Many a tyrant led with unity and synergy. Synergy, too, must be consecrated. Again, we talked last week about Joshua chapter 3, verse 5. Consecrate yourselves today because tomorrow God's going to do amazing things among us. And we talked last week about how last year, this time, that was such a huge verse for our leadership. It was a huge verse to me because I realized whatever vision we unify around, it's got to be consecrated to God. It's got to be his vision. I want to consecrate this pulpit. I want to consecrate these pews. I want to consecrate our worship moments. They're gods. That, that, That song we sang at the beginning of service, it will be my joy to say your will, your way. When we come together and say that as a church, we sing that as a church and we make that our prayer, that's powerful because that's consecration. That's saying, God, it'll be my joy to step out of the way and say your will and your way because you're our king. We want to worship you. We want to do the work of your kingdom. Come on, that verse was so powerful to me because like the Israelites that were about to cross the Jordan River, we were up there in Newport News about to cross the bridge to come onto our promised land down here on the south side in Suffolk for our mission and our service. But it's got to be consecrated to God. What does God desire? What does God seek? You know, we talked about brown bears. Again, they're apex predators. They're at the top of the food chain. You would think that, man, when you're at the top like that, you don't have to worry about anybody else. Again, I'm going to do me. I don't give a care about you. That would be me if I was a brown bear. But bears are social. They aren't territorial. They've been known to form alliances and friendships. Some older bears even mentoring young and unrelated bears. It's almost as if they realize that their combined production is better than the sum of their parts. I don't want to give them too much credit because they got bare brains, but I also don't want to insult them because i got to curl up in a fetal position if they find me. But it's as if, even at the apex, they realized again, their combined production is greater than the sum of their parts. God has a promised land, a life to the fullest, an apex for every one of us. But as much as we may attain as individuals, there's growth and maturity. There's life to the full. That we will only find in community, in the family of faith, in the church, through relationships and encouragement, through accountability and tough conversations, through getting rooted. We aren't called to be persons of God. We're called to be the people of God. The church needs diversity, and needs to champion diversity. The church needs unity, needs to champion unity. And the church needs synergy. So let's break from these strongholds, these mental cages. Individualism, entitlement that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. Come on, if I could have the worship team come up. We we last week we had this moment of response at the end of service. Good thing I got small hands, it's almost stuck in there. Where we pulled out these chips because they got a crown on them. You know, when you play checkers, eventually you get to the other side and you look at your opponent with a whole bunch of swagger and you say, King me, right? Again, the impulse in our lives is to climb up on the throne and say, King me, I'm the center. But we're gonna sing tonight, again to close, Jesus, be the center, be the center of our lives, be the center of this church. We wanna respond again to this idea that we wanna consecrate ourselves because not only was this year a powerful year for our church, but we know that in our tomorrows, the years to come, God's got amazing things that he wants to do through us. But it's not just gonna come through synergy and us huddling around and thinking, well, what can we do best? Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to man but in the end it leads to death. We want to know the way that's right to God as we follow Him, we seek Him, we call Him King again and again in our lives. If I could give you one piece of advice for this year in 2017 as we move forward in our second year as a church, it's don't put Jesus on a list of priorities. Don't even put Jesus first on a list of priorities because you're just compartmentalizing things. There's Jesus here, there's this, there's this, there's this. Put Jesus at the center. Put Jesus at the center of your life and let him define every pursuit, every relationship, every decision. Come on, that's our heart as a church, but can we stand and worship together and say, Jesus be the center, Jesus take the throne, Jesus be the king, because if we're honest every day again something tries to climb up on that throne, a lowercase king, an idol, maybe ourselves, But come on in our response and our expectation for all god's gonna do this year as a church let's sing jesus be the center be the center of our life because if you're not at the center what am i truly living for be the center of our church because if you're not at the center what are we doing god we need your spirit we need your presence today and every day so tonight we close and sing jesus be the center come on if you're here tonight and you've never prayed to god I want you to be the center, the Lord of my life, the king over my life. You've never prayed, God, I want to step under your authority. I want to step in obedience to you and follow you the rest of my days because you're my savior, my creator and king. You've never prayed a a prayer, anything like that. Hey, come on, I am going to be right here worshiping with you. You can find me in that moment. I'd love to pray with you. Come on, I'd love to equip you as we pursue God together. Come on, in this moment, let's sing together. Jesus, be the center.